Welcome back to Almost 30. It's Lindsay and Krista. How is everyone feeling? Hi, guys. How are you? Just hanging in. Hanging in. Hanging in. Whether you're at work, on a walk, in your car. We truly appreciate you In listening. your bathtub. Mm. I've... Tell me more. I, I know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think about the bathtub. <laughs> I was finding myself listening to things when I was in the bathtub. I'm like, give nope. yourself a second. Literally, let your brain be. Even on walks lately. Yeah, man. I do. Lo- I love listening to podcasts on walks. I love a listen podcast. I, I love a little little podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm craving like n- nothingness. Yes. We were even talking today how we are not, and this is not like us we are not craving anything no it's like very everything's a little strangely neutral i'm craving peace (laughs) i'm craving some peace in my my goddamn life you know what i'm hungry for (laughs) you know what i'm hungry for (laughs) fucking freedom and peace um but yeah for food i think it's because it's like we've been at home so much so i'm eating the same things You're not traveling. Like when we would travel, you know, for tour or work, it was like we'd always have new treats and delights to have on the road. And I just am over all the food at my house. I also think there's something to us not working out like we used to. And so the body's kind of like, yes, we can just take the bare minimum right now. Yeah. And it's like truthful. (laughs) I'm I'm like, I'm like, it's like, it's really truthful. Like lunch today, I didn't finish. And I was like, I actually don't care. Yeah. That is honestly, when I was working out all the time, that would never happen to me. Same. Ever. Same. And That's it happened twice I... yesterday. I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> Dude, after I t- stopped teaching Soul Cycle, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not really hungry. Yes. After, you know what I mean? After a normal portion. I'm like, I guess I understand how intuitive eating could work. (laughs) I'm like, I kind of get it now. But also too, I'm just so much more like flexible. I'm just Mm -hmm. like, whatever. I had like half a box of Three Wishes cereal for breakfast. Oh, I love. It was so good. Love me some cereal. There's something about cereal. Childhood. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like- bananas and strawberries. Oh, no, no. Get the fruit out of there. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love Fruit it. Fruit will not muddle my cereal. <laughs> I would honestly work around it because it gets all soggy. <laughs> I was just thinking this morning, I've been having a tough fucking time getting up in the morning. Dude, it is, I don't even, and I'm like, I'm am worried. I depressed? I don't Same. know. But like, yep. it's really, I, I, you know, I don't think I'm, I think we're all kind of experiencing some emotional things that could be depression, but yeah, I'm like, I'm worried. Yes. <laughs> Period. I was telling my therapist that I'm like, I'm not interested in anything. I can't get up in the morning. She's like, this sounds like depression. And mm-hmm. I was like, what? Because I wonder, I is, wonder if like, there's going to be studies around this time and yes. just kind of like a collective depression. I don't yes. know. I'm just like, my energy's low. It's very like, Normally, I'm pretty good about alarm goes off, Same. get up. And now I'm just like, I'm laying there as if I'm like observing my body. I'm like, yes. I can't move. <laughs> it's definitely a symptom. And it's been weird because this year I've been able to feel depression again, you know, mm-hmm. where I felt it in my life. It's such a unique feeling. <clears throat> like that feeling is part of it, but there's such a uniqueness. It's like this first, it's hard to describe for me. It's like, there's a switch and then there's all of a sudden like a pit in my stomach. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Mm. oh man. And it's so 
Yeah. But I can imagine so many people. But yeah. I think the exhaustion too is just so much energy moving through. Mm. Like, yes. I'm not sleeping that well. And I usually sleep well. I'm sleeping okay. My cats are all over me. Yeah, I think it's the cats. Dude. <laughs> I'm like, dude. <laughs> I'm martyring. I'm, I'm martyring head. for the children. So I lock them out at night. Because I'm like, I need space. And then they'll be like, now they've learned. They're like, mew, 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 mew. At like 2 a.m. So I have to open the door and then they come in and they literally step on my head for 45 minutes. You know you're a cat mom when you say mew. Yes. And <laughs> not meow. That's yeah, so true. <laughs> it's mew. mew. <laughs> my, my cats are really um, unique and special. And so they mew and not meow. <laughs> but also they're little. No, they're, they're so little, sweet. They're little children. Um, yeah, I It's mean, killing I, me though. I can't imagine. It's killing like, me softly. And then they sleep all fucking day. <laughs> they're up all night stepping on my face and then sleep all day. And they don't touch Justin. Really? Yeah. Has he told them not to touch them? Do you need uh, I don't to have know. a conversation with I them? I don't know what it is. Mm. But it's funny because they're, I think because they we adopted them and their mom abandoned them young. So we, I think they were away from their mom at too young of age as for kittens. And, you know, I think it was like four or five weeks. I'm not sure. And so they do cut down of like they're trying to milk. Totally. And Justin has like a skin tag on his back. <laughs> <laughs> so they found his little skin tag and they thought it was like a nipple. Wait, and they that's were, so smart of them. Hilarious. That's and they crazy. were milking this like skin tag for like 10 minutes. <laughs> I have one on my arm. They can come over. You have a little baby one. Yeah. It's it's genetic. My dad has a lot of them. No way. I don't know if it's genetic, but I, I mean. Actually, you know what's funny? My mole on my face. I have a mole on my left cheek. My dad has a mole on his butt cheek. Oh, isn't that hilarious? I have one in my butt, in your crack in my crack. Only Sean knows. <laughs> and now all of you. Yeah, honestly. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's it's been interesting in the morning. What I'm gonna try to do, and I guess I'll keep you guys posted. I saw our friend Shayla Quinn do a 5 a.m. morning routine, wow. and I was like, actually, if I can, because I'm a bitch about sleep. So if I What's can the get point when we're in quarantine, totally. But I actually okay. So watching it. I think just allowing more time in my morning for a bit more like quiet slowness. I do leave about an hour and a half right now, but I think even more time before we like really throw ourselves into the day would be beneficial for me. Um, so as long as I get eight hours, I'm thinking maybe five, five 30, I'll try. And she does like just half hour workout and then half hour yoga. She does like her coffee or whatever, elixir, meditation, being outside with the dogs, like very simple and anyone can design their morning. But I think the point is just getting up before you normally would, way before you normally would and just having a space. bit more space. And I'm going to see if that helps. I just love the sunlight. So when I get up, I like having that yeah. It just kind of wakes me up all over. So is the sun up at five? No. I used to I be a five AM so. person. Yeah, and now I'm not at all. Yeah. I'm like six thirty right yeah. now. Yeah. And six thirty was hard for me today. Yeah, same. Yeah. Same. So yeah. But it's so weird. I'm like, what am I doing? Because I'm like, for me, doing a workout half hour, making that all that would take three hours. I know. I, I just am like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, what am I? I don't know. But there's a lot of, at least for me, I I find myself like, there's like contemplation moments where I'm just like kind of standing there 
and I don't know if it's like my mind running or just we're literally walking it, through signs of depression, <laughs> like it, it, like very specific. <laughs> It's literally Holy. like like anything we that's don't normally to takes an hour. We know it's very serious, yes. but yeah, it's like as you, someone that struggles, I'm laughing. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it because it's new. I'm like, it, yeah. Is everything okay? Welcome. Yeah, welcome. Welcome, mental health family. <sighs> well, let us know your quarantine routine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how like. Can we look up that hashtag and make sure oh that it's... Oh my gosh, I'm sure. ...has been trending? I love... Yeah, I love Shayla, though. She's the best. Yeah, she is awesome. Man, oh man. I'm excited for today's episode. Before we get into it, would love to just tell you some things we're excited about here at Almost 30. We have our merch out, and I've seen so many of you rocking your merch. It's been so cool to see. And this line that we collaborated with Daisy or Danny of Daisy LA on is sustainable and eco-friendly. So cool. Soft fashionable so soft I just fucking I love it and yes of course it's like almost 30 apparel but I don't see it as like yeah go out and rep us it's really like repping your own yes. power your independence like I don't know That's I why just we got I Danny love it. to do the designs yes like the one design that I love is um the we out here one and it's like the three women and it is like mm-hmm. so dope and then we have or that one's we out here mm-hmm. yes yep. and then not alone is like the alien space girl inspired one and then honestly yeah honestly is a classic, classic. um i actually need to grab an honestly tea on yeah. my way out um but yeah we're so proud of it it's all eco-friendly sustainable organic all the things so you can get it at shopalmost30.com and also on shopalmost30.com we have downloadables uh like the dream workbook or the dream bundle or you can find our affirmations there's also tons of digital workshops on topics like energy healing anxiety aliens i mean so much more let's see human design what else? Sex. Sex. Yeah. Fuck like a goddess was so Intuition fun. and reactivation. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, these are great gifts. Yeah. I've like sent them, I've bought them for friends, but uh, no, it's been, it's really nice that like right now, I think getting things is just feels different. And so to have just something you can do digitally, very easy through your computer and something that like is for you and for your development and uh, evolution is just kind of special, like a special gift. So if you're looking for a gift for someone, I'd say check out the shop. Yeah, it's experiential and at home. Yeah. You know, which is so, so cool. So shopalmost30.com for all the apparel, for the workshops, for any downloadables Mm -hmm. and everything else is at Almost 30 Podcast on Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest. Um, And make sure to sign up for our mailing list and you can receive our, like we have over a hundred affirmations that we use every single day. So sign up for the mailing list. Sign it up. And today on the podcast, Mark Groves yes. is joining us. This is iconic. This is a long time in the making. He didn't know that, but we, we've been wanting Mark, Mark on the podcast for, for quite some time. Uh, you know him on Instagram as uh, at create the love. Mark is just like one of those people that I just, I love his trajectory of his story where like he's, you know, been in the finance world, in the pharmaceutical world, you know, doing a job he hated, you know, in relationships that weren't serving him to say the very least. And now he's kind of used those rock bottoms and really has created not only a life he loves, but he is now like just really in his 
in his power and in his uh, yes. purpose. Yeah. He is a human connection specialist. He does no bullshit relationship advice. So this is a relationship and human connection related podcast. We talk about a lot of different things. We talk about quarantine. We talked about being open to your partner's truth, like what that looks like, how to do it. We talked about the psychology of liking Instagram models, which was so much fun. Interesting. We talked about men and women's programming and how that's different. Um, and we also talked about how women oftentimes bear the emotional health of their relationship, what that looks like. We talked about empaths and people that are codependent. We talked about empaths and narcissists and giving words to feelings. I really, really loved this conversation. This is so applicable to our community. And I find Mark to just be so, so awesome. Yeah. And he has an incredible podcast, the Mark Groves podcast, which I've been listening to a lot lately. I was listening to an episode he did on holding space. And I just thought it was like a really interesting take on it because he was he was talking about how holding space is actually having compassion, even if you don't like agree with someone. Yep. And I just thought that was really applicable to, you know, the times that we are navigating now on earth, but he's just, he's truly a light and so funny and down to earth. And he was wearing a really um, hot, sexy hat in his <laughs> yes, interview and facts. it is on YouTube. So facts, y'all. <laughs> there we go. And also too, so we mentioned it in this episode, but you know, a lot of these concepts and ideas are for every gender and every type of relationship. You know, they may come off from the gender heteronormative perspective, but they can be applicable to anyone and anyone that you love. Yes. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Mark Groves, you can go to markgroves.com, follow him on Instagram at create the love or listen to his podcast, the Mark Groves podcast. But we appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast was one that you loved or any other episode, we would appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That means the world to us. And if you just want to share with a friend, I mean, that's that really means a lot to yes, us too. Truly. That's how we grow and we're happy to support and serve y'all. Yeah, so if you are in love, looking for love, just interested in human connection, this one is for you and this one is for your community. So thanks for sharing. We appreciate you. I'm Krista, this is Lindsay. We're almost 30 and we'll see you on the other side. Bye. We're so happy you're here. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Long Very time coming, truly. Truly, truly Seriously, madly, I deeply. have heard so much about both of you for so long mm. that oh. I was like, I'm so excited. Aww. You know, Colette, the facialist. She's who does, everything. Right? That, everything. Um, excuse me? <laughs> I know. Right? Honestly, everything. I have. Whenever she I, talks to me, I'm like, where are you from, actually? Yo, she's, Which planet? Honestly, she was like, been really instrumental in my overall just like growth. I think it was like when I first met her and she was just like encouraged me. This sounds funny, but encouraged me to be more bitchy. <laughs> She's like, you need to be more bitchy, which meant like you need to have better boundaries pretty much, which we'll talk about okay. on the podcast. But she has been so profoundly transformational for our growth. She's incredible. She is so awesome. I love her. Did you she get lives a, just down the road from me. Did you get a facial from her? Not yet. Oh. Keep, I'm hounding her. You, oh, oh yeah, you trying to get that appointment? I know it's hard. Yeah, trying to right? get that appointment. And I, like we, hung, she's really good friends with my friend Michaela Rubin. Mm -hmm. Do you know Michaela? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, whenever I, they're together, I spent a bit of time with them in quarantine. So cool. I was like, I was like, now I'm in the inside. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not fate. I must have fallen out of that ring because now I've texted her a couple times, and, and I'm like, am I getting ghosted? Oh, she's got Red. the best boundaries of anyone I know. Truly. Honestly, she's 
she's a magical person. She has to because she's got this like magical ability to feel into your soul and talk to it and then tell you what it said to you mm-hmm. while yeah. giving while rubbing your face with oils. Have you guys had a facial from her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm on yeah, her secret her list. Next level. <laughs> when yeah, she comes to LA, she secretly texts me. I'm not, I'm not to brag. It's like my yeah. one. I live down the street from her and I don't get secret texts. I get secretly, I get ghosted by her. I don't tell most people. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, well, we could probably go on forever. You know, Lacey loves you too. She just said the best things about you and she's also a dear friend, but your work is so important and so much about what you talk about is relevant to us, is relevant to our audience. And I think, you know, for Lindsay and I, when we're thinking about the conversation, we were thinking about kind of two different areas in which we want to explore. And the first is more of like the general human connection space, which is like empathy, narcissism, and general just connection within relationships, especially during this quarantine time. And then the other is like dating and love. So looking forward to digging in today and just really, especially more now more than ever, talking about the importance of connection when it feels like we're so connected but not at the same time. Yeah, it's it, it's so interesting, like the the fracturing of connection. And I heard you speak on one of your recent podcasts just about it's really wild how, you know, biologically we are like fearing each other as human beings right now. But mm. I'd love to just kind of like meet you where you are and see how you've been navigating this and what's been most challenging for you as someone who studies human connection. (laughs) Right. Then people are like, oh, you must be so good at it. (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, actually, the reason I went into it was to discover how to rectify my own dysfunctions, you know, and, and I love, I'm sure it's aligned with your experience too, that you sort of take your mess and then you're like, wait, other people need this message too. And, and I think it's such a gift in a way, the like my writing and, and when I began was really about excising my own shame. Like, what have I learned about myself and what can I share about what I've learned? It, instead of hiding it and putting it in this little box and putting it in a closet, I started to see that sharing it was actually this bridge where people would say, me too, I'm experiencing that as well. And gosh, navigating this has been, I think it's different to navigate something like this and experience, like I don't really have many distractions. You know, I don't drink anymore. I, you know, dabble in the odd uh, THC gummy or something like that. But even then I found that that was pulling me away from being really present. And I think these things just go together is that I've come to this place where being present and fully awake or fully alive is maybe a better word, is better than what I had achieved through having drinks or uh, experiencing marijuana. And that though has come with this double-edged experience, which is that if you are fully present to everything that's occurring today, it's overwhelming. And I would say we're sort of in this state of being fully present to our mortality, fully present to the dysfunctions of our world, to our governments. to So everything is so destabilizing that we have really no choice but to be thrown into discovering and creating some sense of peace and home within ourselves. Because I've certainly experienced in the last five months, uh, especially at the beginning when the chaos was really at its height of COVID, I, I really did experience like, 
this world is sometimes too overwhelming for me. Like, what can I do to, to change this? And, and then realizing that the answer, of course, is never to silence ourselves because that's the desire is to isolate and wall up and not get involved. But that's actually the very thing that, that keeps the, the wheels moving in the way that they are, in the dysfunctional way that they are. Because, gosh, it's sad to look at the, the so much suffering. It just it becomes our suffering. So that's the thing. If you're open and you're alive and you're awake and you're noticing, then you start to feel such a deep sense of pain. Yeah, that's that's hard to be present for. And there's such a, you know, it's such an interesting thing too, because it's like, you know, the full presence is something that, you know, I stopped drinking a while ago. I, I drink every once in a while now, but that enabled me to be more fully present. And then it was diet and then it was meditation and so many spiritual practice really practices really allow you to be in full presence for your life. And there's such a interesting moment too, where, you know, you want to be fully present for your life. And it's like when I am fully present with my actual life, when I'm like sitting in meditation or I'm at my house in peace, it's such a different feeling than being fully present when I'm looking at my phone or social media or the news. So oftentimes it's like when I bring my presence to what can be distortion of information, it can be extremely harming. And then we never really know where the truth is. And that's what's really, you know, throws us off our kilter is like not understanding what is actually truth. But so much in that is, I guess, how do you navigate that where you want to allow yourself to feel because that's part of the human experience is to really have compassion and empathy, but you don't want to be in the vibration of pain all the time because, you know, pain and pain can't really solve or heal together as much as someone that's healed. So what is like, what's your process with that? Yeah. I I love what you said about the meditation creating presence. Cause of course, when you're on your iPhone and you're looking at Instagram, it can sometimes be a healthy escape, right? Like and it can also be where you start to create a lack of mental health because you're comparing yourself. You're seeing these highlight reels of people's lives. And so it's, it's like anything, you know, it's always about moderation. It's always about selecting, you know, you, you can't imagine that you're going to have a healthy state of mind and be consuming the news all the time. That's actually just impossible. And, you know, in relational research, relationships that, that survive have a five positive to every one negative interaction. So anything below five to one in follow-up, it's a six-year follow-up that the Gottmans did, predicted that the relationship would end and anything above showed success and they really thrived at seven, eight to one. There's something like 45 to one negative to positive in news. Something like ridiculous like that. So you can't expect to put yourself in, which is very true relationally. You can't expect to have yourself in a negative relational experience surrounded by a negative system, uh, friends or whatever it is, and expect yourself to be in a positive state. That it's sort of interesting because what we've done with emotion is we've taught people that if you have negative emotion, there's actually something wrong with you. And if you have positive emotion, great, you're doing well. Instead of seeing that, we, we shouldn't be coding emotions as positive and negative. Of course, they feel different in our bodies, but we should be seeing that emotions are actually pieces of information and those pieces of information are actually inviting us to do something with ourselves. They're inviting mobility. Anger is one of the most mobilizing emotions there is. And sadness is important. You know, if you 
are sad, then it's important to look at, do I have a reason to be sad? Am I aware of the things that are creating this in my life? And then we shift, you know, and that's the invitation. But when you do something to numb your state so you don't feel the sadness, you're not actually changing anything. And then you expect to feel different. But of course, uh, it's it just doesn't make sense. It won't work. And, and then we feel like there's something wrong with us, right? So it's always these confounding factors. The way in which I do, which I, you know, someone said to me once, how do you always stay so positive? And I was like, I don't. And that is sort of this invitation for my humanness that I'm not always in elation. And I allow myself this space of like not knowing. And, but it is about, for me, it's about healthy rituals, exercise, being with nature, uh, meditation, uh, you know, I think anything in moderation, you know, I would, I don't mean for people to think like, you got to get sober to figure it out. It's like, no, but if you're even thinking, should I quit drinking? That's just an important thing to follow. You know, you don't have that inquiry unless there's something there, but we so often are like, yeah, but how am I going to navigate this? If my friends do it, or, you know, we always, I, at least when I first went on that mission, it was like, but there's a wedding next month and there's a, a, mm-hmm. a bachelor party or whatever it is. Yeah, that's that self-inquiry piece is so interesting because I think we can say like, yeah, I'm curious about myself. I do the inner work. I do the work. But when it comes down to it, I'm not quite sure if the proportion of the work that we do or the questions that we ask ourselves is in proportion to what we expect of other people. So to clarify that, I heard you speak about, you know, how we are wanting our friends or our partners to understand us. And yet we are not necessarily taking the time to understand ourselves or have self-inquiry. And I'd love to just talk about that and like what that could look like, because I think for a lot of people and just speaking from my own experience, you know, years ago, it was just kind of overwhelming and I didn't know where to start. When we start to recognize that we are seeking like understanding from someone else, seeking to be chosen by someone else, that's the endless chase of unavailable people uh, ending up in dysfunctional patterns and relationship. It's the externalization of something that is internal, right? Yes. And and we all, you know, when you finally wake up and to this idea, you know, this, I keep saying wake up, but it, it really awakening is about starting to ask questions, just starting to say, why do I do what I do is such a beautiful, but although very challenging journey. And that externalization of the someone else will provide for me is usually from childhood. You know, it's usually a need that we didn't get met or a feeling that we didn't have. And so we continue to pursue it. And not realizing in the stopping, in the not engaging in the pattern, in the being present with ourselves, you start to cultivate a reverence for yourself. Uh, It's one thing to be in this act of self-love, which we hear things like, you know, take a bubble bath, drink rosé or whatever it is. And those are all beautiful because they send the message that I matter. You know, if maybe it's going for a walk, maybe it's working out, maybe it's eating nutritious foods whatever it is, they all send that message. But there's another level of it, which is having a deep respect for oneself, uh, an admiration for oneself. And Pima Chodron talks about it in her book, When Things Fall Apart, this principle, this Buddhist principle called Maitri, which is about becoming best friends with yourself. And I think that's really the line because as soon as you do that, you know, we hear things all the time, like 
oh, it's always about love yourself first, all that kind of stuff. But why it matters so much to develop this sense of respect and admiration is that when someone doesn't match that behavior that you offer yourself, you'll know and you'll be able to separate the two and no longer will unavailability even be attractive. No longer will the thing you keep seeking externally be attractive. You won't even want to give away that emotional hook anymore. You won't want someone to be completing you because you're like, I'm already complete. Stop trying to fix me. You know, I'm, I'm good. And with that, like, I also think too, like being your best friend, it's like having your own back is so important, you know? So it's like when, you know, the time comes, if you were ever to get feedback about yourself or anyone just trying to like tell you what to do within your life. It's like when you have your own back, you don't need to look around to see if that is true or not because you know within yourself because you've cultivated that that sense, which is like so key. And that's like, that's the goal basically, being your own freaking best friend. I wanted to talk about the, there was something else that you really said too about being open to your partner's truth. And, you know, just having an open mind in relationship and allowing like the evolution of your partner and really whatever that comes. But I wanted to talk about that. Like, how can we be more open to our partner's truths, especially if they're hard? <laughs> That's the right? That's the work, you know? Uh, when I was in my 20s, I for sure had a harder time with other people's truths. You know, when I look back, a lot of that was that I was avoiding really truthfully hard conversations. It's interesting in our development as relationally is that we learn relationally how to be in, in romantic relationships from what we observe and what we see in media and what we uh, watched in Disney and things like that. And, and so you learn through your evolution uh, how to be a good kid in your family, how to minimize conflict, how to be a part of your religion or your culture or whatever it is. And then you realize you wake up in your 20s or your 30s or whenever, it doesn't really matter when, and you start to think like, do I actually even like the things I'm choosing? Why am I living this life? For me, I woke up at around 27 and I thought, how did I get here? Like, I was making these choices, but I didn't go travel in Europe because I was afraid. I did a finance degree because I was told that was practical. And I started to see all these. I had to start to differentiate between who I am and, and what I was taught. And that, of course, comes with a great amount of grief. And what happens in a relationship when one person says, hey, I'm learning this thing or, hey, I feel like we're disconnected or I'm not happy or I won't tolerate that, is that they're calling forward the truth. And really is the beginning of, or a a continuation of a deepening, which is, I no longer want to love your mask. I don't want to love who the world taught you to be. I don't want to love all the ways that you've molded yourself because I don't want to do that anymore either. And I think it's really fascinating that we wake up in relationship and we go, holy shit, I can't even believe how I got here. And I'm tired. I'm tired of pretending. And so there's a really cool moment that occurs there, although it's scary, which is there's an invitation now to either the fracturing of the relationship or the deepening of it. And not all of them are going to survive that moment. And I, you know, I've certainly been on that. I've been on the receiving end of that one and on the other end. And 
I started to discover, I wish I had discovered it earlier, but all at the perfect time, that if it ever involves my partner having to abandon themselves to be with me, then I would never want that because I would never want that for myself. Because we are, if we know the pain of our own self-abandonment, we would never want it from someone else. And I started to see that relationships, the way they've been socialized, is that you hear, have you ever seen those memes where they have like the old couple who are like 110 and it says, we made it 75 years, how mm-hmm. did you do it? And it's like, well, we took commitment seriously back in our day. I'm like, ooh, millennial shaming. Way to go. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Millennial shaming on like a millennial communication technique such as me. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. The irony. It should be a fax or something. (laughs) But what I hate about that image is it doesn't communicate that one, it it shames this idea that we don't take commitment seriously now. There's a great article and book by Eli Finkel called The All or Nothing Marriage. And it really talks about how uh, marriages of today are actually more satisfying often than they've ever been. It's just that there's fewer of them. And it's because we demand more from relationship. We don't want to be codependent in relationship anymore. We don't want to self-abandon. We don't want to be in gender roles. I mean, there's so many confounding factors to that simple, annoying meme. Because we also don't realize that there's so many people who are married who hate each other. And that's when I started to pay attention to that. I was like, wait, we celebrate anniversaries, but we don't celebrate relational death. Mm. And this till death do us part marriage vow, I, I think about it like, it, are we talking about a mortal death or the death of self? Yes. Because is it the death of the part of us that made the vow and... Then relationships become a prison because we celebrate longevity and not depth. And when we do that, we celebrate abandonment. And when we only celebrate relationship status and length, what it does is that anything that can make it not last, a hard conversation that can potentially fracture it is avoided. And because it's avoided, we never deepen our relationships. And so we end up being celebrated, but not personally celebrated. Our soul is not active. We have to fall asleep. We get sick and we get depressed. And then we wonder what's wrong with us because this relationship should be good or it shouldn't be. And maybe there's a lot of evidence. We are staying in something dysfunctional because we've also been taught that you will be judged if you get divorced or you break up. And that pisses me off because it doesn't celebrate relational freedom. It doesn't celebrate truth. That's a long way around the barn, as my friend would say, to get to a place where it's hard to acknowledge someone else's truth when we don't know our own or are afraid of our own. When you start to bring truth to the surface, then real, actual love exists because love is freedom. Harriet Lerner, who's a psychologist, talks about how unless you are free to come and go from a relationship, you will never feel free to be yourself. And I love that concept because It obviously has many layers because, of course, we have financial implications there. We have socioeconomic influences there. And so there's a lot to consider. And it's something that I aspire that we can all move towards, which, of course, is all connected to everything else, which is our political systems, our food systems. They're all they're all we're all sort of imprisoned Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways. Yes. Mm hmm. Oh man, I love that point about the longevity. It is a thing, you know, people are like, oh, they've been married, my parents, 30 years (laughs) and they got divorced in like 
they've said it, you know, they're like, we should have got divorced after 10 years. But it is that programming of like longer is better. And that's also too in so many systems, but in even like work systems, you know, where it's like, I've been here for 30 years at the same <laughs> yeah, job, right. which is fabulous. If you got a pin. Exactly. You know, I got a pension or whatever, but it's like, yeah, it, it just doesn't prioritize the right thing, which is like people's own evolution and evolution comes through, doesn't really come through comfortable experiences actually. So it's like, yeah, I think that's powerful. Love it. Yeah. The point about like milestones versus like those like little moments, like, and I think that's, I just think there's so much that we're missing in relationships or maybe choosing or not choosing or subconsciously avoiding where like, there's just so much value in a simple thoughtful question to your partner or to a friend, or maybe just like a smile or a look and, or maybe when they don't know you're looking at them and you just kind of like love them energetically from mm -hmm. afar. And I just think that's, that's so, so important. And to the point about like, you know, demanding more from a relationship, I think what's interesting about that is that it's like inherently, and I quote, like putting that in quotes, saying that it's something is wrong, but it's really that like natural part of what a relationship is, which is ever evolving. I guess the question is, you know, in your experience and through the people that you work with, the feminine versus the masculine, you know, what do you see in like the stuckness around going deeper in a relationship and how would you really explain that in the lens of like a feminine and masculine? Well, in the construct of if we're speaking first from like a gender normative perspective, I'd say that one of the greatest challenges for men, and I would say that people who are in their masculine, this tends to be true too, is that there's an extreme aversion to emotional depth because people who are in their masculine extremely usually have suffered some form of injury of intimacy and or been socialized to not be emotional to, you know, I mean, I think that's pretty obvious for men that we have been socialized even in research when they hand people and tell them they're a baby boy versus a baby girl, they immediately speak differently to them. So the socialization is one part of it. And so I think about this, you know, if, if you're trying to have an emotional conversation with me and, you know, this was definitely true for me, I had a really hard time having emotional conversations when I was younger is I didn't have the fluency to have that conversation. And it was also in direct conflict with what was celebrated as being male or masculine and what quote unquote, like alpha males were being chosen for or being celebrated for and what the media celebrates too. And we also have to shut off our connection to our hearts in order to go to war. And, and of course, women now do that too. And so there's that one part of it, which is, we get stuck in this space of not being able to experience emotional intimacy because one, we don't have it with ourselves. We've been severed and castrated from it. And the other side for the feminine is this complete overfunctioning. you know, this mm. like doing everything, trying to keep everything together, doing <laughs> the emotional work of the other side. Mm. You know, because we could argue like in some sense, those gender roles, the masculine or the male was going to work and providing and, and so was severed from community and connection and emotion and the other 
the female side was overwhelmed with holding together the glue of the connection and the community and the emotion. And so, but now today, what is demanded of the male is more emotionality and, and that there is equanimity or the, the move towards equanimity from a providing and a, a job opportunity point of view, right? Like there's certainly a movement towards that and there has been some shifts, but there has not been much shift in terms of the acceptance and celebration of the emotionality of a male to take on that different role. And so that overfunctioning side is really fascinating because it, as soon as, you know, cause you might see it as something like, you know, the, the woman, and I'm speaking heteronormatively in, in the household might book all the appointments and, you know, the parents are coming for the weekend. They have everything set up and the guy comes home and he's he finished work and he's tired. So he just kicks it in front of the TV. And of course I'm giving a, a certain example here. You're describing and, my house. Right, <laughs> this right. is my actual okay. house. Perfect. <laughs> well, they come home. And so when the when the woman stops doing all of those things, and this can be any combination of genders, this overfunctioning and underfunctioning, is when the in this example the woman stops doing the overfunctioning, it all stops falls apart. Overbooking, Mark. everything it falls does. apart. <laughs> it does. That's true. But if you let it fall apart, mm. it invites the other person to regularly function. When we stop reading the books for them, when we stop <laughs> booking the appointments for them, that's. I mean, in essence, that's codependency. A hundred. Right? Right. So again, as someone who's a recovering codependent who loved to read the books and do the things, I mean, I have an old Instagram account that was based on that. You know, I just took my overfunctioning and turned it into a job. But now knowing that there's this, that self-abandonment, right, is doing too much to try to keep things together when actually letting things fall apart is what allows the child to finally do their laundry. You know, sorry, you don't have clean clothes. I don't do all your laundry all the time. You know, like that over that. So those two sort of, those are, those are where I see both genders, but also in speaking energetically, it's a similar sort of extreme of being stuck. Yeah. I feel that on a spiritual level. And it's interesting too, you know, I've been exploring this in the past couple of years as I've seen especially, I guess, being in the entrepreneurial space. So I was in the corporate world for eight years and management consulting and and all these things. And it was like, okay, I was sold this thing where it was like, be a power woman, you know, Mm. make your money, be independent, all these things. And then this was our side hustle for a few years. And now we're entrepreneurs. So I was doing, you know, the relationship, the friends, the community, you know, all the appointment scheduling within my relationship, the household tending. And then I also had the side hustle and I had the full-time job. And now, you know, this is our full-time running the business, but it's like, I just am seeing sort of the holes in everything that we're being sold as women, where it's like, almost like a woman, woman that stays at home is is shamed like there isn't enough to do to run the household and now we're also in addition to being the people that manage and like uh, maintain the temperature of the relationship and the communication of the relationship in a lot of different instances now have to also have the job that earns the money and like do all of these things and it's just so many women I feel like of our community are so burnt out from it including you know myself I'm like recovering from that and it's just fascinating to like just how much stuff women get, we get sold, you know, about what we should yeah. look like, who we should be, what roles we should do, like what makes us good, what makes us perfect. And it's just, it's kind of like heartbreaking, you know, to, to watch it happen when it feels like it's well-intended. Well, it, 
sort of is sold to us as it was historically the survival strategy of the species, right? So although that might be true, because, you know, we weren't around for the evolutionary experience of the development of all of these things that we're now sort of undoing ourselves from, you know, I, I think about it a lot of like, at some point, consciousness was born where we started to think about our instincts. Should I actually instinctually do this or is this not healthy for me? And I think we're still doing that. You know, there's still this differentiation from, am I taking on these roles and these behaviors because I was taught to do that and I was taught to keep everything together? Or am I doing it because it's actually born from an expansive place? You know, and, and that's separating from uh, who you are from what you're taught. And that's, you're right. It, it is. It, it strikes not only sadness, but probably a lot of anger too, because you wake up in these roles and you're like, fuck this, you know, this isn't who I am. This is bullshit. I've been sold this story that I need. And, and, you know, you start to see all the ways in which media and religion and culture indoctrinate us and industrialization did it too, business, corporations. I was a pharmaceutical rep for 13 yeah, years. Yeah, so that was my shit. dream job when I was in high school. I was like, I'm going to be a pharmaceutical <laughs> rep and it's going to be amazing. Like I had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. Oh man, I was <laughs> oh one. So gosh. you know, I like think about how yeah. I was on the other side, you know, and, and although I'm incredibly grateful for the experience it gave me and the awareness it gave me, because I have a deep understanding of that side of things, much like your corporate experience is it makes me see the other side and everything that I was sold. I was, you know, going to the national meetings and they were like parties. And I was like, yeah, you know, the company that I worked for yelling their names in celebration. And then you realize that yeah, I mean, I remember becoming an entrepreneur too and thinking, why didn't I do this so much earlier? Like I was taught that I was supposed to get this job in a company and make a certain amount of money so I could be a good provider. And I was like, man, people, whenever I wanted to like pursue some sort of dream idea, it would be like, uh, you can't really make money doing that. Oh, you can't. And you start to see that all these limitations we're taught are such bullshit. Yeah. And we live in this really cool time where... You're not just limited to, you know, like if you want to talk about Pokemon and you live in a small town in the Midwest, there's probably not a massive amount of Pokemon fans around you. I don't even know if Pokemon's cool anymore, but I remember it was. We'll bring it back. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe now it will be cool again, a revival. (laughs) Someone's got a new job opportunity. But now with the web, with the internet, well, the web, totally the, web was, yeah. the web was yeah. epic. <laughs> yeah, the web. You were like, I'm going to do Pokemon 10 years I'm late 41. and I'm going to okay. say the web. Yeah, I'm going to do it on the web. <laughs> I'm going to use dial up for that too, if you don't mind. I'll just fax you my catalog. But what's interesting about that is now you can do that and you can find, you can create so much. And so I think, although the internet is such a birth of consciousness, and this really opportunity for us to see things in a different way. Uh, it also requires that we are flexible in our own identity and fluid in our beliefs. And, you know, in we talked at the beginning about how do you hold space for your partner's truth being different than your truth? Well, it's the exact same thing as holding your religious beliefs as being possibly untrue. As soon as you accept the possibility that something is untrue that you were taught, especially something that is a core part of your identity, as soon as you are open to that, it opens a floodgate of all the things possibly being untrue. 
And I feel like that's the same collective angst we're experiencing now, which is, oh, all of a sudden the government's telling us about, oh, aliens are real. Yeah, fucking thanks for the newsflash. People have been talking about that. You can't even, you don't even have to be good at math to just do some sort of equation and figure out that the universe is unlimited and expansive. There has to be. And the misinformation about COVID, the censorship on the internet, like all of it is driving me bananas. You know how the systemic raising, all of it is just like overwhelming. And that is actually important to sit in because the same discomfort that we experience through all of that is the same discomfort as recognizing that someone else's truth can exist and be different than yours. It doesn't invalidate your truth. Both can coexist, but in both coexisting, you're now curious. And in the curiosity of me hearing my partner's truth, I'm now open to seeing the world differently and that it doesn't make me wrong. It actually deepens intimacy to hold two truths because Mm. now the container of the relationship is not about being right. It's about being seen. And that is a huge shift. I mean, that's my grandparents' relationship was not about being seen, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what a gift that is. But that also comes with a much more, a much higher level of responsibility of learning emotional fluency. Um, You know, I think that demand on men is really high and it's really important that we do the work. We can't be saved anymore. We can't be depending on that. It's actually important that we stand up for our own emotionality. And I, the biggest problem we've had is that we've taught men, especially that masculinity is connected to their emotions when it has nothing to do with their emotions and nothing at all. So it's so fascinating how that's perceived as weakness when, you know, I really think that emotion is the currency of the future. It's the currency now Mm. um, more than ever. Yeah. That's powerful. So much there. Yeah. The holding of two truths deepens intimacy and just like expands that container of a relationship. I think that's like, it's like removal of the ego. You know, the egos need to be right. And that's so powerful. You know, that made me think of in that conversation, I went real back in my head. I'm like, what are we like taught in school? Right? Mm -hmm. Like we're taught to take this fact quote as truth. This is right. And then, so our teachers, our parents, this, that are building this foundation upon which like we're supposed to have like solid ground, solid understanding of the world, of how to be in the world. And then all of a sudden, you know, if we're talking about holding two truths and maybe realizing that what we believe is might not be true, it just shakes that foundation, which is like superficial in itself. It's just so interesting to think about like how from a very, very, very young age, we are taught to like have that solid foundation, believe what you believe, like hold true to it. And so that's why there's so much of this grief and angst around like, oh my God, how could you, how could you believe that? How could you believe that? That is so far right, so far left, so far up and down. Like, how could you believe that? And it's really that fear of like, oh my God, mm-hmm. what I believe could not be what true. And yeah. like yeah. these foundational yeah. beliefs that mm-hmm. might might not be true, 100%. Well, isn't that, I mean, that's essentially, we can't even have conversations that are uncomfortable because we're so terrified of creating that uncertainty. And we see that in these heightened political conversations. I also think it's a really fascinating that, it's a fascinating time in that, if our governments don't actually do that and model that behavior, then how can we expect it from ourselves to, if it's not modeled, right? It's something that has to be cultivated from within. You always see that the underbelly of culture through creativity and art usually is what's speaking the truth. You know, what we've called conspiracy theorists, well, sure, yeah, flat earth, I don't have time for, but 
And maybe it's true, but I don't really care unless I fall off the end. That'll be a problem. But the <laughs> other side of it is that it doesn't matter that one. But the, I, what I've noticed is that what I used to think were conspiracy theories are often just a few chapters ahead and a lot of shit's unfolding. Then I'm like, eh, a lot of people I used to think were crazy are actually onto something here. And it's made me more open to more what people would call a fringe thought or a fringe theory. And there are certain audiences in my life that if I was to even say that or have a curious thought about that, then like it can't, it's, it goes to what you were saying. You're, you're raised in school. You're taught, this is your religion. This is your God. Don't question those things. It's all about faith, by the way. Just throw yourself to faith. Don't question anything. And if you do, then you're not operating in faith. A man who's old with a beard decides if you're good or bad, or depending on your religious structure, but that's you know one of the core ones of Christianity or Catholicism. And then science is fact. Well, I used to work in pharma, so I know that science isn't always fact. Statistics can be manipulated, and there's been a lot of misrepresented science. And so Right away, it's like this indoctrination of this is truth, but there's a feeling in our body when something is not truth, but we're sold it. And I think we're all in that right now. I mean, I, I'm not saying everything's a crock of shit, but there's certainly some things that aren't making sense for us. And that dissonance causes us a lot of angst and denying that dissonance or denying someone else's dissonance is just to try to minimize our own but it doesn't do it it's like operating a life or in a religion that you know there's something in its extremes actually creating suffering and creating pain but still believing in it you have a deep sense of of sadness because you know that you're part of the story but you're too afraid to let go to surrender to the possibility that there's deeper truths going on which is, I mean, again, I recognize it's overwhelming, but we have to sit through that storm because through that storm is now this sort of calm that we get to say, okay, I can now be the one who trusts myself to differentiate this information. Yeah. And yes. And so much of that is, you know, part of, it's like the ego death, you know, the ego is gripping on to this like indoctrination or this belief of, of whatever the thing is. And really, you know, everything is the invitation for like curious conversation without, you know, judgment and with compassion. And I think that's really beautiful. I really, really, really love what you said. I wanted to talk about just, I guess, to go back a little bit to the codependency thing. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Let's go back. As someone that I, th yes, I, th I, I am for sure. Not intensely, but yes. So it's a pattern. Welcome to the club. Yes, yeah. it's a, and so I want to, I guess I want to break and that. Welcome to humanity. Honestly. Ever. That's what our relational structures are, is codependency. Yes. Okay. So I guess let's, I guess talk about how that, why that's true. Well, the inherited version of the story, you know, to have breadwinner family, you know, that type of structure of relationship, to have the gender roles that we had. I would argue that, you know, like I said to my parents, you know, originally you can do anything you want. Well, that wasn't true for either of them. They grew up really poor. My mom came from Ireland, you know, like they grew up in really poor families. There wasn't the web. And so there was this, that wasn't true. You were sort of limited by your geography to what you could do. And so in some way, the relational, the structure of the relationship and the roles that people took on ensured the progression of the family and shirt, right? But they also required self-abandonment because if you wanted to be part of your community before globalization, you couldn't just hop on a boat or a plane. So from a tribal perspective, 
you had to adopt the beliefs and thoughts and feelings of the people around you and you had to take on certain roles. So there's sort of this birth of authenticity or the freedom to be authentic that has begun and, and continues to occur. You know, humans, Gabor Mate talks about this, that humans have two needs, that they have the need for self-expression and authenticity, and they have the need for belonging. But when authenticity and self-expression threatens belonging, belonging usually wins. Yes. And so that's in essence what codependency is, is self-abandonment in order to be connected. So what mm. I'm doing when I'm self-abandoning or and I'm codependent, I'm making being connected to you, the family or whatever it is, more important than being connected to myself. And so we learn that off. Well, I mean, we learn it through the relational structures we observe. We learn it through not being allowed to share our opinion, to not self-express. We might dance as a kid and someone says, stop that or stop singing. You sound gross. And all of a sudden we minimize our voice. We and so we shape shift. And, and so that's where it really comes from is, is neither person is celebrated or invited to pursue what their deepest passions and their full self-expression is. And I feel like our life continues to present us with obstacles and rock bottoms that invite us to this. Uh, and that's what breakups really offer. That's what conflict in a relationship offers is the opportunity to either deepen intimacy or not. And if we've never seen that done, because most times our parents had conflict behind closed doors. So we don't even know what repair looks like often. And a lot of us don't, didn't observe or experience repair if we had conflict with a parent or we had conflict with a friend where they would say, I'm sorry that the way I acted, you know, or whatever it is that we're all handed it. I mean, look at Disney. I mean, Disney stories are about generally a damsel in distress who needs to be saved by a prince and, you know, so there's something about someone needing to identify as being in distress too and being, and then I'll and, and so we end up in these like cycles of wanting to fix people and wanting to save people. I mean, gosh, if it, it's, it takes away the opportunity for us to save ourselves when we're constantly in relationships like that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How would you, you know, guide people to once they're in awareness of like their codependent habits, how to, call both themselves and that partner or that friend, whoever they're codependent with into a conversation or behavior around healing that. Well, a good sign that we are codependent slash lack boundaries is if we have resentment. Resentment is 1000% of the time an indication that we prioritize something or someone over ourselves. So it's just a, it's showing that we lack prioritization of self. And that's why we can resent our kids, right? Like mm. that's why it's, we can resent when a partner makes a habit more important or chooses that because we resent what they're doing because we, well, I didn't go to the gym yesterday because I was doing that for you. We don't realize that we're scorekeeping, that we're, we're resenting the model, the behavior they're modeling. So the first thing when we start learning that we might be codependent is that we want to then, you know, fracture the relationship, look within the relationship, tell our partner, you're codependent with me. And as soon as we just begin the own, our own internal journey, okay, what does that look like? How do I do it? Where do I lack boundaries? Who, what do I need? What do I want? And it might be the first time we ever ask ourselves those questions. And what would prioritizing me look like? And then you start to learn how to structure language in a way that is not triggering because codependency 
and relational dynamics always exist in 50-50s, right? Like it would be awesome if we could say they're dysfunctional, I'm good, but really why am I with, I'm participating in dysfunction. So to- Which applies to, to everything. The, that applies mm-hmm. to like everything. It's like every, if you're, 100%. you're, everyone's participating, even in like not relationships, like even social media, it's like both are participating. Mm-hmm. Everyone, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. when you take that responsibility, then we go, oh shit, I guess I'm part of that. And we- start to learn how to individuate, how to build our own identity. What do I value? Because if you don't know what you value, you don't know what to put boundaries around. If you don't know like what sort of is the price of admission to be in conversation with you, what do the standards you hold for yourself? That's why that deep sense of admiration for self is so important because if someone else treats you in a way that's disrespectful, you, li- you embody respect. So it will be a red flag. It will be something you don't entertain anymore because your own system, you know, the vibrational experience that you're having is too high. You're not into the low anymore. It's not attractive anymore. And you, because you're repairing your codependency, you no longer are dropping yourself to meet people to try to save them. You realize that through staying in a space of high standards, good boundaries, kind, respectful communication, is that you're actually inviting them up. So, so many of us limit our growth, limit our expansion to hold the container of the relationship, not realizing that the container of the relationship needs to expand to hold both people or not. And when you start to change, it's like a dance. If, if your dysfunctional dance is the polka and all of a sudden you start doing, I don't know, what's another cool dance? Salsa. The salsa, the salsa is a cool dance. <laughs> so you start doing the salsa. I couldn't do it to save my life, but it's Same. cool to watch. The salsa, then you can think of it like they're still doing the polka, but you're doing the salsa over here. Well, you're inviting them to learn the salsa, not over-functioning anymore, not trying to do a polka salsa to try to make them feel good about themselves, right? You're not willing to go back into the dysfunctional dance, but you're saying, I love us enough to learn this dance together. And that's, that's why when you change within yourself and you change the way you communicate, you invite the change of the pattern. And the other person in the relationship will often be like, wait, you know, they, you might get in a fight and your normal cycle is to, you know, one person gets defensive, the other one's critical. As soon as someone stops being one of those roles, now the other one's like, wait, like you, you normally get angry here and you're like, calm and asking me questions. And so they might try to get back into the cycle because it's familiar. So that's an interesting thing about us is we would rather some sense of familiar suffering than unfamiliar expansion, you know, Mm. unfamiliar growth. Uh, But if you hold and don't overfunction and you have patience, then what you'll notice is either that person will start to come towards, which is much like healings of addictions and things like that. It's not by enabling, it's by expressing what the standard is that you hold and the hope that you have and what what sort of boundaries you're going to hold. That's the healing of self. So Mm -hmm. the healing of self always invites the healing of other, much like the healing of our systems that are operating and creating angst is our own healing. You know, you can't go in and change the system. We have to change ourselves. And then the system changes because we did. I was thinking about too, with the boundaries thing and resentment, I have kittens <laughs> and I was rese- <laughs> I was resenting them today because they were literally all over me last night, sleeping on my head, meowing in my face. And I'm like, oh, it's the boundaries I didn't set by closing the door. Mm. 
Like, yeah, I resent my dog sometimes too. And it's not his fault, right? Like, <laughs> my fiance was like, You can't, like, in the middle of the night, I was like, Hey, I really need space from you. And he's like, You can't be mean to the babies. And I'm like, Dude, this is not going to be the martyr. I'm not going to be the martyr of the family and like dying for these kittens. For the cats. I'm not the martyr mother cycle happening now with these cats. We're closing the goddamn door. Well, we realize that boundaries are love. You know, I think that's yeah. one thing that people often feel guilt when they express a boundary or close the door on their kittens. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is the same is true. Like with my partner, I told her to put the dog in a kennel and she was like, ah. Oh, like kennel, it's like a prison. It's like a cage. I'm like, it's a, he's a den animal. It's his home. He goes in it sometimes on his own. She's like, oh, and I'm like, that's right. Trying to save the dog from a feeling. And we often try, I'm not saying this about her because if she listens to it, she'll be like, what did you say? The, <laughs> like, you're like, so this, this example's done. Okay, next one. <laughs> right. Yeah, but in another example, uh, we often try to save people from feelings we don't like sitting in ourselves or we don't know how to. And we do that with kids a lot, uh, but we can do that with friends. You know, if I'm working and doing a like a workshop back historically when you could do things like that way back <laughs> when. What I, One of the rules that I always have is that if someone is having an emotional experience, you can't go hug them. Yes. They that let was them my, have it. Don't yeah. save mm-hmm. them. That was my biggest learning in the past year. Please yeah. continue. Yeah. I remember that first happened and I was like, why are you not letting them hug when I first yep. observed that at a workshop? And then I saw it. It's, I mean, it's like the other person is experiencing the discomfort of their discomfort. And so it's both people experience healing by just leaving it. Yes. And it, it feels like it expands the space too. I think we, we kind yeah. of experienced that when we were seeing people in person as well, like on tour. And it does expand the space when you're just able to really witness them mm-hmm. and hold space and energetically hug them mm-hmm. and not literally kind of like ooh and on ah hug. It was like really powerful shift. Mm-hmm. And yeah, oftentimes the, the hug is like, usually exactly the person's discomfort with the emotion that the person is experiencing. And it, if you think about it physically, it's like a way to stuff it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just stuffs <laughs> totally. it, you know what I mean? Instead yeah. of actually like the full experience of the emotions happening in with the person in their own sovereign energy. Yeah, it sends a beautiful message to the person of, I trust that you can hold this. And it also, you can follow it up with, is there anything you need from me right now? And that also teaches the person to learn how to express what they actually need instead of someone just hugging them and enmeshing on them, right? It's like, I need a hug right now or I need space. Actually giving that. Most of us, when someone says, I need space, our fear of abandonment and rejection gets triggered. And so we don't know how to hold space and the other person doesn't know how to hold closeness. And so that becomes this conflict. Uh, That's often a relational pattern, right? A chaser and a runner. And so we mostly shame the runner, and but we don't see that we also have to create space for people to step into. So we're, if we're always taking it away by over-pursuing or whatever it might be, then we're not actually allowing anyone to meet us, which is actually part of the unconscious brilliance of that pattern, is that you're never getting met. And, and although it's a familiar cycle of pain, it's familiar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The I know that one well. I, I know. Same. I was, a <laughs> I, was, I was a runner yeah. for years. What were you, runner or chaser? I was both. I like to keep it, you know, mixed keep it up. Fresh. I would, yeah. Like I'd run, I'd chase. And then when I got them, I'd run. Uh, so mm. I was, I like to pivot. It was. Yeah. 
kept things kind of, hey, what kept is it going to like, oh, what's going to yeah. happen? Who am I today? <laughs> well, and that's why you don't, like when people experience, because those are just two forms of insecure attachment. It's so easy to pivot between the two because you, neither of those, you don't have to learn security. So you can go from one to the other, but you never actually form security. And so that's why it's so easy to go between them. And they're, they're actually, it's, it's so interesting that we shame the avoidance side, the runner side. We, we often label that as narcissism and, and not seeing that there's actually an intimacy injury on both sides. It's just being manifested and expressed. The protection is being manifested and expressed differently. And so they're just uh, different ways of coping and surviving intimacy pain. Yeah. Once again, an example that could be applied to everything, (laughs) you know, with any situation, there's wounds on both sides, you know, Mm -hmm. whether each person is experiencing anything, um, which is so profound. Okay. Last question from me. I wanted to talk about this because it caught my attention. I thought it was so interesting, but was the, the psychology of the Instagram models and like, oh yeah. Yeah. And then following Instagram models, my fiance would is way too scared, lives in way too much fear to follow Instagram models (laughs) and would never. And honestly, he's like truly an angel. So he wouldn't, but what is that? What is that like belief system, I guess, that both parties are subscribing to where we're seeing that happen so much? Where we're seeing men do that in general, men. Yes. Um, You know, I, I think about if I was 20, and there was Instagram, I would for sure be on that shit, like following models and whatever. I don't even know. (laughs) Back when I was really young, you had to like get on dial up and download a pornography (laughs) image. And it would take so long that you'd just be waiting for the nipple to finally show up. (laughs) Um, So then you'd maybe resort to like a Sears catalog Mm -hmm. or something. But you know, so I think about this inundation of imagery being uh, for all humans. It doesn't really imagine, I mean, matter the gender that we are like hyper image driven, and there's some narrative and and support to say that men are more visually driven. Uh, but this is also, you know, part of the socialization that we say men stray because it's more biological. That's not actually true. And the research actually conflicts with that a little bit, that there's some interesting research that shows that women get bored of monogamy faster. So, you know, these are all snapshots of ideas that researchers wanted to check out. And I always take research with a grain of salt because it's about a massive group or a small group that's representative, uh, as opposed to us as we can never be categorized as individuals. So there's freedom still in our choice. I just had uh, uh, Laura McNally on my podcast to talk about this. uh, And she mentioned some really interesting research that at the age of around 10, boys and girls start to be exposed to sexual images now. And I'm like, holy shit, that's crazy, you know, to think about. And she said that what happens is, is then that young girls start to judge their bodies based on how they look. And young boys start to think about how their body performs because they're judged based on how fast they can run or how they do in a sport. And she said there's a really important distinction there, and I might not be getting this exactly right, but the distinction being that then what happens is is that women, young girls are starting to self-monitor and think about their body. And she said there's a study where they asked people about their body, one group and the other group, they didn't ask anything and they both wrote a test. And the group that got asked about their body performed 30% worse. 
And she said, that's because we start to self-monitor. So our, we're actually thinking about how we look. And so we can't actually use our, our, the full functioning of our minds. And so she said, it's then that there's really the separation between the genders in terms of uh, how women become objectified and start to want to look a certain way. I didn't even realize that a lot of what is happening now is that people, more women, are taking a picture of what their Facetune app looks like and going to plastic surgeons, as opposed to historically people would bring like a celebrity's picture. And I was like, that is crazy to me, you know, to think about. And so I think there's an, an insecurity that exists in terms of, I mean, obviously all of those form insecurities, but I think about my own personal drive if I was to be following Instagram models and things like that. And I, it would, one, I might not be considering the impact of that choice. Yes, you know, like right. I just Very might true. not be considering it. And I also might have shame when my partner brings it forward because mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm so engaged in this or turned on or masturbating yes. to it or whatever it is. And so I have a fear of that. And so shame kicks up and I'd rather just say, what are you jealous? Like, this is your stuff. This is you. And it doesn't matter if it's their stuff. The really important thing in, in that conversation, but it's true of any conversation, is the other person's experience is still valid, even if it's historical, or even if it's because they've been cheated on. Even if, Because what happens now is someone's wound or both people's pains have been brought into the relationship, now asking to be witnessed and potentially healed. And then, you know, our wounds all occur in relationship. That's where they begin and that's where they have to be healed. And so, you know, if my partner said to me like, Hey, I saw you, you know, like this picture or whatever it is, it'd be so easy for me. And I would probably want to say, if I'm being honest, why are you looking at what I like? And there's another opportunity there to say, tell me more about that. And me hold my shame. And, and you can learn, it's like when you communicate a boundary, you experience guilt. You can actually learn to increase your capacity for those things. And so I can increase my capacity, hold this space. I'm having a reaction and I'm able to say, okay, tell me more about that. Where does that come from? What is it about my behavior that's making you feel uncomfortable? What would me engaging in a dialogue or a model online, what would a healthy way of me doing that, that feels respectful to you? For me, the relationship itself is always the most sacred connection. So, you know, I'm going to have a healthy response to say, I actually feel that's not mine and that actually might be yours, but I'm also open to discovering that it might be mine because there's a lot of things that I don't think are mine that Mm. end up being mine. So I'm open to that always. And so I don't think we have those skills in our early 20s because we're not taught them in school, you know, and I think that's probably becoming more untrue now because there's a lot of young people having these conversations and thinking about these things. And that really makes me excited about what the world we're creating. And and so I think if we can start to have compassion for both why the male is socialized to engage in those images and and where that actually comes from, because men are also socialized to, to be told that they're hypersexual, that their performance is in their sexual performance, right? That their masculinity is correlated to that. And, and so there's a compassion that still needs to be had there. There's often not space for compassion for that side. It's instantly about you're hurting me, you're disrespectful. I often see comments and reply to that that say, just ditch him, he's a narcissist, you know, which that right away, I'm like, 
no, there's no space for humanity in these rapid diagnoses that are not, when they're real, they're incredibly painful. So I'm not dismissing that. But we're lacking the compassion for them because maybe we don't have compassion for our own experience and where that jealousy comes from, where that wound comes from, which it's a layered uh, conversation. Of Completely course. perfect. I like the space for humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is too. You know, it's also like that and, you know, recognizing the programming of men, like you said, I think is so powerful of them to be hypersexual, of them to be, this is what guys do. You know, that kind of like mentality that we have where I was like, this is what guys do boys will be boys, you know, that type of thing. So I love that. I think that's perfect. Well, it, there's a moment where in maturation that, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, that there's not really a, you know, there's a a form of initiatory process that women go through from adolescence to adulthood, which is getting their period. Right. But there's not really like a culture, tribally and historically speaking, there was an initiatory process where a male would go from being a teenager to an adult. And I think it was in the Maasai tribe where they would paint young uh, adolescents in ash and then they would walk around the village and the village was told to treat them as if they were dead. And then they would actually have a funeral for that uh, child and then they would be given a new name and then they would be an adult after that moment. And then they would be responsible for the village and the safety. And the, and I thought, I hope I'm getting the accuracy of that right. But what's so fascinating, no matter where that comes from, about that is I think we lack that in the male gender side. And because of that, I think of my adolescent response to my charge, to my drive, to my sexuality, is to double tap a picture, is to look at these things, is to over-sexualize women, is to be lost in the allure of youth, of, of feminine youth. But there's a maturation that has at least occurred in my life because I can say I didn't do it, but that's only because Instagram didn't exist when I was at that age, because I would have for sure done it, I think, is that I now have this maturation which has occurred, which I say is that I'm in charge of my charge. I'm in charge of where my sexual energy goes. And if it goes in misdirected or misguided or in slippery spaces in how I communicate with women, in how I interact on the internet, then I'm actually disrespecting my relationship. That's easier to say, but what I'm actually doing is disrespecting myself. And that becomes a whole new level of maturity, which is available to anybody. And it's just a moment where we say, I'm actually responsible for me and the impact my behavior has. Because my intention in following a model might not be a negative intention, and there might be something on both sides, but the impact it has is still important. Mm-hmm. to observe and explore. I like I'm in charge of my charge. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Last question from me. I think this time in general has really forced so many of us to slow down. And it just makes me think about and kind of correlate that to the slowdown within a relationship too. I got a question from from someone who knew we were going to have you on the pod and they were asking about you know, building attraction over time, which I think is kind of a common question. Like, oh gosh, like, will I build attraction for this person over time? (laughs) Yeah. But I I do think that, that this is also something that is so layered. And I think we're taught, um, in so many ways, like just this very quick satisfaction with everything that we receive and experience. And in my own experience, in my current relationship, we've known each other for eight years. And in the beginning I was like, "Mm -mm," like, too much to this, to that, whatever. And now I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) 
like I, I feel like a completely different person because I am and I'm experiencing him completely different. So can we just talk briefly about how we can develop this attraction over time, whether it is within a friendship or within a romantic relationship and the involvement of that like inner work in in that? Yeah, I think there's two separate but we'll be together parts of that. One is when we're attracted and erotically motivated and aroused by people who are unhealthy. And then when we meet healthy people, we're like, wait, I don't want to hunt this person. They call me when they say they're going to, like there's reliability. So there's that one part, which is a recalibration and a redefining of what love is. And so if we experienced uncertainty, chaos, any of those things, abandonment, rejection in our childhood from our parents, often we can associate love with those things. And there's an interesting thing that occurs when we're attracted to people who aren't good for us, who treat us poorly or whatever it is, and then we have sex with them and we're like, holy shit, this is the best sex I've ever had. Like, Whenever I'm not in a relationship and I have these friends with benefits, booty calls, oh my God, it's incredible because there's an elation to it, right? There's also an end to it. So we will often, you know, when people travel, they often are like, hey, I'll just hook up while I'm at this hostel. And then you end up falling in love with someone because you didn't put a limit on it, you know? So there's that side of it. But what's fascinating is we tend to eroticize our pain in that sense. So if I really fear abandonment and rejection. I might continue to be in patterns of experiencing abandonment and rejection and being attracted to people who provide me with that. And then what happens is I then have sex with them and that actually gives me an endorphin, dopamine rush and oxytocin. And that treats the pain. So that actually becomes the drug that numbs the abandonment and rejection feelings, the the feelings that are fear. And so we start to get this really heightened sense that's fed with climax, I mean, ideally, and then it, and then it drops. And so we can get caught in that pattern of chasing. And so when we decide to stop that, there's this space, right? We keep talking about this patience of space between who you are, who you were, and who you want to be, old patterns of communication and how you want to create a life, the relationship you want to create. And so there's a space where you stop pursuing the unavailable and you actually have to allow your body to come and it starts to get... So I would recommend people don't actually date for a while, for probably like six months where you have no sex, no intimacy, and you get to just be with yourself. And in doing that, you start to figure out, do somatic work, do, you know, if you have trauma, do trauma therapy, you know, start to learn about boundaries, start to raise your standards for yourself, invest in yourself. And as you do that, your body starts to experience what calm is. And then when someone's unavailable, it's not attractive anymore because you're in this state of uh, of like a nice healthy stasis of calm and and what then occurs is that you start to you know date and maybe you're like eh, this person and I think there needs to be a healthy level of desire but you also have to give yourself a chance to start to see that love is really about safety it's about security it's about being able to depend on someone we often confuse eric Fromm talks about this in his book the art of falling in love where he says we confuse the feeling of falling in love with being in love 
And I love that distinction because it really shows us that we think love is only the honeymoon phase, but it's actually the coming home. It's the calm. It's the, it's being able to be yourself with them, to cultivate a safe container for growth. And where that can start to get lost is that if we are codependent, if we abandon ourselves, then over time, what happens in the relationship is as I engage in this relationship, usually around the three-year mark is where we start to see that we've forgotten about ourselves. We lose attraction to our partner. Well, we knew it existed once, so it can obviously be brought back. But what has happened is usually we've lost ourselves in the relationship. We've forgotten about that or we never had ourselves. And so what happens in the body is the body is like, this relationship isn't safe because I'm not able to freely be myself. And so you don't want to have sex with someone who you blame for the loss of yourself. And when they might be like, I never asked you to do those things. Yeah, but it's what we were taught in relationship. And so what really is sexy is when we start to individuate. Like what creates attraction is the space between two people, not when we overlap one another. And so that can start, you know, it's like when someone says in a relationship, we're like, hey, can you do this at this time? And the person's like, no, I can't actually. And we're like, oh, well, this is kind of sexy. Like you're standing <laughs> up for yourself. Right? Like boundaries can, are incredibly hot. And that's why when we're in the dating phase and we first start dating and someone says, no, I actually can't do that. I have time with my girlfriends or whatever it is. We're like, oh yeah, this person's not available. And what's interesting is we, in the pickup culture, it's, it's taught be unavailable to uh, increase attraction. But that's only because on a biological level, what busyness indicates is that you are a high value partner and maybe highly sought after. You're busy with other things, but it's really what's attractive about it is the model of individuation, that they value themselves. So the sexiest thing you can do is develop boundaries. That will usually, when someone says, I'm not attracted to my partner, I usually ask them first, like, when did they actually feel fully like themselves? When was the last time that they actually invested in themselves? You know, and as that occurs, usually the other partner is invited to do the same. But again, that's this continued conversation of that either fractures the relationship or it actually deepens it. And then there's intimacy practices you can put in, you know, like where you uh, try new things. I mean, one of the things that keeps relationships alive is doing new things together because it tricks the mind from a, a hormonal level into thinking that it, you associate this person with the new experience. So it's one way, it's like if you go on a first date and you do a roller coaster, the, you associate the person with the emotional experience you have on the roller coaster. It's kind of like a dating hack, you know? <laughs> Feel free to use it. That's amazing. <laughs> Next time we can go out, take them, to, take them to an amusement park. But that is like, if you, in the research, when they have people go on date night and just do what they've always done, there's no increase in relational satisfaction, which is not to say that that's not an important ritual. It is important. It's just that when you do something that is new for one or both partners, it actually continues to create expansion, right? New experiences. And it also increases, it, it makes one of the core tenets of the relationship begin to be, again, adventure. And adventure is so key. We need adventure. We need new things. We need, you know, shiny new experiences. 
which is not to chase them, but to say that I'm choosing these because our, we forget about each other. We forget about nurturing our relationship. And we often ask questions like, or we say things like, my relationship is not giving me what I need, or I don't feel, it doesn't feel how I want it to. And my reframe to that is always to say, what do you need to do to make the relationship feel that way for it to be the container that, that actually is something you desire? Mm. And I think for new experiences too with your partner, it's, it's kind of fun to like watch and observe and learn new things about that other person or even with like friends, like, oh, I didn't know that like he'd be scared of that. And that's kind of interesting or kind of mm-hmm. cute or whatever, right. you know, it's just like these little nuanced moments that can really deepen the relationship. Yeah, that was, that's so good. Wow. You, well, you get to invite your partner too to say like, you plan the date. Mm-hmm. And take me on like, what's your favorite adventure? What's something you love to do? And then you get a window into them. As you said, you know, curiosity is really the answer to so many things. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as is humility, yes. you know, paired together, having humility is, I would say, is kindness and generosity and humility are the most important characteristics of a relational partner. Yes. Um, because if someone, if, if you're open to being wrong, now you have a bridge. Yes. Otherwise, a bridge to humanity as well. Mm-hmm. All of these right. things apply. <laughs> right. I just want to get bring it back yeah. to the macro of like the bridge to humanity. Yeah. Truly, yeah, agreed. That's powerful. This was so much fun. I'm so grateful. It was like, yeah, this was incredible, and I'm really excited to share with our community. So, where can they find you if they don't know you already? You can find me on Instagram at Create the Love. And you can find me on actually on all the platforms except for TikTok. I'm not I'm not TikTok. Same. I'm not yeah, either. Yeah. I'm like, I don't think I'm in that generation. Mm-hmm. I said the web, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on markgroves.com. And you can find me on createthelove.com if like right. courses interest you or I have a course on boundaries, codependency, breakups, uh, lots of different things. Love it. Incredible. Love hey, it. So your much work for having me. and your yeah. time. And hopefully we can meet you in person. Yeah. Yeah. Same well, then when we can open the world back up. But thank you so much for having me on. I mean, your platform has been so transformational for so many people oh, I know. And so to be part of that, to be part of someone's passion and mission is oh man it's such an honor so thank you i'm gonna say that next time to someone else too because i loved that so much thank you thank you thank you thank you you, mark all right we'll see you soon mark see you soon Bye. 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 bye Oh man, that was such a good one. So if that inspired you, please share with your friends. Everyone can benefit from hearing more of Mark Groves. You can go to markgroves.com for more information and at create the love on Instagram. And for anyone who wants to start grow or monetize a podcast, we are hosting and leading a podcast accelerator. We're really, really excited about this. We are going to be focusing on growth and monetization, and we're excited to start taking applications. So look out for that. If you're not a part of our newsletter, go to yourpodcastpro.com com and you'll get all the information. Yep. We're going to be taking through a small group of people to help them grow and monetize their podcast. So over the past four years, Lindsay and I have learned a lot along the way being in the industry, and we are excited to take a special few through the process so that you guys can realize the podcast of your dreams or even the business of your dreams. So yourpodcastpro.com, make sure you're signed up for the newsletter and we'll keep you posted with more information about applications for that.
yeah, thank you all for listening. We hope you're doing well. We're here to support you and we will see you on the next one. We'll see you soon.